Firecast, a podcast from MDM Publishing, brought to you in association with Asia-Pacific Fire magazine, focusing on disaster management, fire protection and the fire service. Welcome to this latest Firecast, where we discuss some of the big issues with the experts in the fire industry. Hello, I'm Paul Hutton, and today my guest is Sean Bethel, Wildfire Mitigation Specialist and Director of Business Development for FTS, that's Forest Technology Systems, the global leader in fire weather networks. Sean is a wildfire mitigation specialist and has had more than 20 years of operational wildfire management experience combined with 15 years working in private sector with wildfire mitigation technologies. Sean's role at FTS is to help demonstrate the many successes of weather monitoring, automated observation, predictive services and wildfire mitigation technology applications with land management agencies and how they can be easily adapted for use in the utility sector and how these situational awareness technologies can help reduce risk, increase safety and build overall wildfire resilience. So Sean, welcome to the Firecast. Thank you for the opportunity to join you today and talk about wildfire technology. Okay, so let's start at the very beginning then please, Sean. What is a fire weather network and how does it benefit wildfire operations? Well, Wildfire 101 Learning tells us that wildfire behavior is primarily influenced by weather, topography and fuel or vegetation. We can observe the shape of the land and we know that the big driver of wildfire spread is slope due to heat rising and preheating of fuels. And we know that weather plays a huge role in not only the dryness of the fuel, but wind speed and direction can determine where a fire will spread. And also by the vegetation, the fuel size, the type of fuel, like the tree species or fuel separation, for example, the spacing between trees in any given landscape also plays a big role in where a fire will be in one hour, one day, or one week following ignition. Well, fire weather network, unlike meteorological weather stations, which are located more proximal to urban centers, typically at an airport or near infrastructure, uh, a weather network is a dedicated wildfire weather network that captures very precise data in rural or more remote locations, which are more indicative of where wildfires typically burn. So the FTS Remote Automated Weather System, or also known in the wildfire industry as the standard or the the RAWS, is a fixed weather station designed to the requirements set by the U.S. federal land or wildfire agencies that make operational wildfire decisions. They use the data from these stations to feed into what is called the National Fire Danger Rating System in the USA. And similar wildfire danger rating systems exist in both Canada and Australia and are supported by FTS RAWS weather stations. So these RAWS stations are ground-mounted, standalone systems. The standard weather parameters measure include wind speed and direction, temperature, relative humidity, solar radiation, precipitation, and also fuel temperature and moisture to reflect what's out there in the landscape that can burn. The system can be expanded to measure other variables like barometric pressure and snow depth if required. But overall, the data is collected and transmitted hourly using geostationary operational environmental satellite systems or GOES systems as a requirement by wildfire agencies that cannot live with any interruption in the distribution of weather data. So they also require annual calibration of the sensor packages on these stations to meet the maintenance requirements. What they have in the United States is a national wildfire weather monitoring guideline. So in the United States, there are several thousand across the United States. It's a several thousand globally. And in the United States alone, there are 3,000 stations 
actively providing highly accurate weather data to support wildfire mitigation operations. These stations can be deployed in remote conditions using solar power for up to one year without maintenance or interaction from any technician. And the National Fire Danger Rating System that is constantly being fed with timely data about the dynamic fire weather changes in our environment drives the operational decisions on resource allocations across state or federal jurisdictions, including decisions to import or export resources to another country. For example, Canada, USA, Australia, and New Zealand have cross-border sharing resource sharing agreements, and they often share these resources uh, on a regular basis, and actually more frequently in more recent years. I'd also comment that Mexico and South African resources have been shared in North America over past years. But the point is with this National Fire Danger Rating System and the data that's fed into it, these decisions are multi-million dollar decisions that ultimately not only protect the people and communities, but the frontline workers that are on the front lines of today's aggressive wildfires. So you've got portable and compact weather stations and you've got fixed site weather stations. What are the differences and when would you use one against another? Paul, let me share something you know, similar to a lot of wildfire technologies deployed in the field today. These tools were developed in response to an operational need from the field. Uh, FTS was founded by a wildland firefighter in the early 80s. And so similar to how a wide range of aerial firefighting or fire management tools used both on the ground and in the air were developed, the FTS weather stations were born from a need 40 years ago to capture site-specific fire weather data for prescribed burning or suppression efforts on a large wildfire incident, for example. And in these harsh environments and remote areas, it needed to be very robust and continuously pump out very accurate and reliable weather data to operational people both in the field or decision makers in wildfire management offices that make the expensive decisions about resource allocations, either pre-positioning resources or preparedness strategy or more reactionary to suppression demands. It's kind of like uh, what I call triage, you know, the largest fire risk gets the closest available resource first. So to your question uh, about the difference in the application between portable, compact, and fixed weather stations, the portable ROS weather stations developed by FTS to respond to requests from land and wildfire agency personnel that had access to ROS data but required more site-specific weather data. For example, planned or prescribed burn or to manage a large-scale wildfire. In both cases, they needed the real-time weather data to give them more command and control of the situation and by anticipating weather influences on wildfire behavior and the tactics and strategies that will be needed to manage the wildfire for controlled and prescribed burning or to just suppress it entirely. The compact weather stations on the other hand are designed to be mounted directly on utility infrastructure or really any infrastructure that's out in the landscape. For a greater density of fire weather data, for example, along sensitive utility transmission and distribution corridors, FTS supplies this configuration of weather station to provide greater weather data density and more precise granularity to support grid operations and mitigate wildfire ignition and utility areas of interest that may impact both their assets and the public safety. You know, the standard parameters include all those measured by the fixed RAWs that I was talking about, uh, as well as barometric pressure. And, and this data is collected and transmitted based on customer needs but typically we find our customers are transmitting it every five to 15 minutes using cellular telemetry. So this near, I call it near real-time weather data enables near real-time weather alert functionality. 
And this level of accuracy, reliability, and granularity from these compact weather stations enables utility operations to make critical decisions at critical times. So it's interesting. What are the key differences then between wildfire agencies and electric utility organizations, for example, in, in terms of wildfire risk and mitigation? Great question. You know, similar to wildfire agencies around the world that have varying levels of wildfire management program developments, uh, not all are created equal, but tens of thousands of electric utility companies ranging from investor-owned utilities to small, medium jurisdictional utilities, public utility districts, consumer-owned electric cooperatives, and everything in between, they all have a wide range of wildfire risk and associated stakeholder engagement and or access to the funding to first understand what level of fire, wildfire risk they're contending with, first and foremost, and what I, what I like to, to call knowing your wildfire workload, and then following the information in a wildfire risk assessment, which is absolutely mandatory before deciding on wildfire mitigation technologies, and determine what are the exposures, what are the primary pain points, and then prioritize the efforts around the largest vulnerabilities. Utilities have spent billions over the past several years in not only litigation payouts, but investing in creating grid resiliency and improving their wildfire mitigation planning strategies and tactics. And in more recent years, this includes acquiring modern situational awareness technologies. I read an article in an electric utility industry publication recently that reported electric utilities will invest an estimated 11 billion on wildfire prevention in 2021. This is encouraging. You know, there's a lot of catch up work to be done by many utilities. And even some of the California based IOUs, you know, the investor owned utilities, that started investing more extensively close to 20 years ago now are still finding new ways to stay ahead of the curve investing annually and continuing to utilize proven technologies, integrate them into operations and maximize, maximize their wildfire readiness. A recent report published by an electric industry policy and innovation coordination group summarized some of the key considerations for policymakers assessing utility investment decisions around wildfire mitigation. More than half of those considerations had to do with the need for an enhanced wildfire weather monitoring and situation awareness technology. So let me just give a couple examples of that. One was wildfire models and climate forecasting tools need better and more consistent input data. Open source and standardized weather data sets will accelerate research and modeling of wildfire threats and increase transparency of utility decision-making. And cost-effective wildfire management depends on being able to granularly assess risk. So what we're discovering at FTS, to get back to your question, you know, at FTS, we're, we're learning through our conversations with these utilities and their wildfire mitigation planning personnel that they need to move quicker. And they're open to learning about how FTS can readily leverage 40 years of wildfire technology experience towards helping them fast track by investing in their own dedicated fire weather network, turnkey scalable technologies that can be attached to existing electric grid infrastructure like transmission and distribution lines that are already cross-weaved across the landscape. And simultaneously, they can tap into readily available fire weather data from their local wildfire agencies in their areas of interest and start making sound decisions. You know, when it comes to deciding to conduct uh, you know, a very contentious issue is public safety power shutoffs, for example, or to not shut off the power to customers that are more deeply impacted by not having power, for example, essential services or emergency service organizations that need to respond to incidents, or to isolate the power shutoffs to specific areas where the risk is much more critical than others. You know, we've all seen the media imagery of some devastating wildfires 
on the news and we've read about the associated litigation fallout with some of the electric utility companies out there. And so there's definitely a heightened awareness of the need to invest in wildfire mitigation technologies. Um, public utility commissions in Canada, United States, Australia, they're all placing an increasing regulatory pressure on the utility companies to prevent and better respond to wildfire threats. They become more wildfire resilient and protect the local communities from wildfire. And in the case of California, they need to report out on a regular basis what exactly they're doing, submit progress reports on their wildfire mitigation plans. So it stands the reason that they would need access to this you know, critical, timely, sensitive and, and accurate uh, weather data. What other technologies are there about then, please, Sean, that support operational awareness for wildfire agencies or indeed utility companies that are involved with mitigating wildfire? Well, I've been talking about elevating situational awareness by knowing more about weather and its impact on both the wildfire and the fuel it burns in its path. The situational awareness is further enhanced by FTS wildfire pan tilt zoom automated camera systems, which include real-time visual data of wildfire events of the infrastructure or assets and vegetation in the electric utility corridors, for example. So these automated camera systems, you know, placed in targeted locations on existing utility infrastructure can add a lot of value to reducing overall wildfire risk in service areas. Ideal locations include areas where a significant and underobserved risk of wildfire exists in combination with electric utility assets and infrastructure. A further benefit to these systems are that it could be used to perform vegetation management or analysis in transmission corridors. These are areas that you know, can uh, create new fires. So potentially saving the money on the labor costs by not requiring personnel to visit these remote locations and to do the on-site evaluation of vegetation encroachments adjacent to electric lines. And these are, these are lines that are sparking new wildfires, unfortunately. So now instead of sending people out there, they can instead be monitored by automated camera systems, utilizing assets already in place at key strategic locations in the rights of way, as I mentioned, and just, just more greatly simplify the installation and, and reduce the overall cost. You know, the FTS PTZ cameras live stream in high definition at the highest frame rate possible. And there's a full 360 degree pan tilt and 40 time optical zoom for each camera. So at any time, the authorized user can initiate a live stream feed to view in real time or reposition the camera on demand. While not live streaming, the camera transmits an image every 10 seconds and FTS360 software automatically generates a time-lapse recap the past 50 minutes on an ongoing basis, which can also be made viewable by the public if the end user chooses to share the imagery. Tell me something about, I was looking at some of the things FTS does. You've got your software system, uh, FTS 360 Overwatch. Tell me what that does. FTS 360 is a secure web-based software platform with customizable dashboard features and set up to receive all the data sensed in the field and transmitted by the remote automated weather stations, the fixed sites, compact weather stations, and the wildfire PTZ cameras. It also provides authorized users command and control capabilities with, with the cameras and customize alerting based on weather variables, for example, extreme temperatures, high winds, or dangerous thunderstorm alerts. FTS360 doesn't require any software to be installed, and it works on desktop, laptop, and mobile devices, and has unlimited licenses within any organization. 
In addition to the data collected by the monitoring devices, FTS can also include statewide live lightning data as an option and data from all the pre-existing RAWs is already available on any that are deployed in the region. FTS 360 Overwatch is the public-facing website. This brings the scale and distributed data access to uh, the general public. It allows many users access to, to view imagery without degrading performance for the end user. Overwatch doesn't allow command and control of the camera to the public, but rather enables viewing only. And it's an optional feature, but we're seeing it's being seen by some wildfire agencies and utility companies as a great tool for public or customer engagement, for example, communicating the risks to the general public at critical moments when they need to be aware of a wildfire in the area, and to also assist with either potential public safety power shutoffs, as I mentioned earlier, or community wildfire evacuation plans, or both. Well, this is all great stuff, Sean, but you don't sound to me like the sort of guy who rests on his laurels and is happy with what he's got. So what are the capability gaps or areas of improvement that you see in terms of field awareness and why would it be vital that you address them ASAP? Yeah, there, there's a large solution set demand out there with, with climate change and the, the wildfire paradigm that we're seeing shifting around the world. And you know, it's not going to be solved overnight. So a lot of people will be required to help out with this from land management, wildfire agencies, emergency management people, private, public sector industries, uh, like electric utilities, working with, you know, academic institutions, researchers, industry professionals, all working together to gather more information and look closer at available and, and emerging technologies provided by, you know, manufacturers like FTS and, and engage with the tech vendors uh, all of them out there to find out what solutions are there and, and what's viable. We need eyes on these natural areas at risk to wildfire more than ever before. During my wildfire service career, we relied extensively on aerial detection, especially after a lightning storm came through or there was increased public activity in the area of elevated fire danger potential. Aerial detection's always been there and combined with increasing aircraft in our skies, both from you know, civilian or commercial flights, that, that they do report wildfires. And the public agency contracted missions for wildfire, all augmented by drones more and more nowadays. The, you know, the fact remains that these observation platforms will not always necessarily be in the right place at the right time. You know, the aircraft have a fixed range. They need to go for fuel. Drones, for the most part, require pilots and still require line of sight. So they're not quite yet, you know, far-reaching detection platforms. We'd like them to be. Um, and then due to civil aviation regulations, uh, restrictions, and operational limitations on beyond visual line of sight or BVLOS, the drone missions can't always detect new wildfires and observe existing ones when we need them. So I believe that the automated cameras will play an increasing larger role moving forward. And we're starting to see that now, you know, many of our wildfire agency customers and the electric utility customers that we're talking to, they're asking for more information about this. Some of them have already invested in it. And, you know, these are relatively low cost, bite-sized investments right now. And, but they're getting ahead of the curve. You know, they, they're mandated to protect the people, property, you know, and their infrastructure and assets in or adjacent to remote wildland areas that have, you know, either a historical wildfire threat or are becoming new areas of interest in terms of dangerous wildfire risk. 
Let's bring in Neil Bibby, editor of Asia Pacific Fire, who's been patiently listening to Sean's wise words for the last 20 minutes or so. Um, Neil, uh, fantastic sounding innovations here. I bet you would have wanted when you were operational in the field. Um, what would you like to bring up with Sean? You're so right, Paul. Um, what Sean's been outlining is something that I would love to have had back in my days, this uh, next generation of fire managers have got some benefits that we could only wish for back then. You know, in, in my days as Chief Executive Officer of the Country Fire Authority in Victoria, I was responsible for 50,000 firefighters, and that's a fair responsibility. And for firefighter safety, weather changes are, are not a good thing to look forward to, but unexpected changes are catastrophic, and that's where we've lost firefighters. The stuff that you're doing, Sean, in the remote area and the quick turnaround of information is surely going to help in firefighter safety. I'm interested in the outcomes of the stuff you've been doing now and, and where you look at firefighter safety as one of your outputs. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, any firefighter that's worth their, their weight is is a, a meteorologist at hand. You know, he's back, you know, to your point about, you know, wishing we had some of this technology years ago and, you know, there, there wasn't so long ago we carried sling psychrometers in our pockets and, you know, we were watching the wind and we had, you know, lookout and observation people using a lot of sort of on the ground and in the air technologies that were available. But, you know, current day, there's, there's a lot more out there and a lot more access to accurate, reliable, very quick data. You know, there are a lot of smartphones and tablets incorporated into incident management teams, for example, that back in the day did, did not have that real-time information. And, you know, and I guess it was, I mentioned about the portable weather stations, and I think that's going back a few years ago now, but the genesis of that weather station was developed because the fire managers or the incident commander or the fire behavior analyst on the ground that was in charge of that fire wanted to actually see the on-site weather data. So, you know, we're seeing that, but we're also seeing a, a greater weather station density out there. And that's one of the things that I mentioned about with the electric utilities benefiting from, you know, the ability to purchase a weather station and automatically have subscription to, to a membership of the National Fire Danger Rating System, at least in the United States, where they bought one station. They now have access to the network of 3,000 stations out there. So there's, there's an ability to fast track. And I also mentioned about the ability to attach weather stations to existing infrastructure. And, you know, going back a few years, uh, both you, Neil, and myself, there wasn't as much infrastructure out there as there is now. So great opportunity to reduce some costs, attach some weather station capability on existing infrastructure and uh, be more informed. The system is um, far more granular than in my days. We, we were looking at um, areas of a kilometre squared, maybe even up to 10 kilometres uh, you're looking at areas a lot smaller than that in looking at micro weather patterns. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, we can, some of the data density depends on what state you're in. You know, in the United States, it's more like the west of the Rockies, or you'll find as you go to California, much greater weather station data density. Hard to go more than about five to 10 miles without running into a weather station in California, but there's more and more of that happening than ever before. FTS weather stations track all red flag days in the United States each year. 
In 2020, the USA wildfire season saw 58,000 wildfires that burned over 10 million acres, and it's been well documented, the tragic loss of life and property across the nation. But the FTS Fire Weather Network, of the 3,000 stations I mentioned, collect half a billion weather data points each year to help support these kinds of operations. It's one thing to, to gather that data. It's another thing to have it sent out, distributed, and analyzed, and then given that feedback to people that are on the ground. And, you know, when I did air attack uh, roles, managing aircraft, a lot of, the, I mean, one of the requirements to become an air attack officer was to become a fire behavior analyst, or at least take the national accredited course. So you essentially had to understand and know uh, weather and understand all, all, all that's involved in the weather of the site you're going to before your skids off or, or wheels up to, to attack with the aero firefighting tactics. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that uh, I look forward to is um, far more granular work. And as you say, the more weather stations out there, it's not just the weather stations, it's, it's how they're working together and the software behind that that uh, I think you've helped take a big step forward. The um, other area that uh, is of concern for firefighter safety and also looking at extinguishing fires rapidly is during a dry lightning storm. Here in Australia, dry lightning storms are the cause of a large number of, the fi of fires. I noticed you've got some been doing some work in lightning detection. Yeah, you know, FTS is part of a AEM group of companies. AEM is Advanced Environmental Monitoring. So we're a group of seven companies uh, FTS is the you know, leader in wildfire weather monitoring. We have four hydrology companies, US-based. We have uh, Lambert Mateo in, in Germany. Davis Instruments out of California, one of the largest uh, weather station manufacturers, primarily focused on the agricultural sector. And one of our sister companies is Earth Networks. Earth Networks is a world leader in, in lightning detection systems, uh, and dangerous thunderstorm alerting. So we now have with across our group of companies, the Advanced Environmental Monitoring Group, including FTS, a much wider scope of product offerings. And as you mentioned, Neil, you know, access to uh, live lightning data, tracking lightning events, you know, cloud to cloud for sure is important for aviation, but the cloud to ground lightning is, is critically important. Uh, Earth Networks tracked over 400 million lightning impulses and 30 million of those were cloud to ground lightning strikes according to their 2020 annual lightning report. So if you look at every one of those 30 million uh, lightning strikes, those each one of those could be a potential fire ignition in these remote areas, as we talked about with the climate change and the dry fuels and the conditions that are there, just ripe for a wildfire taking off more quickly than, than usual. And, you know, to your point earlier, you know, we talked about having that weather data in the field and going back a little bit, you know, we always looked at 30-30 crossovers, 30 degrees Celsius and 30% RH. And any group of days in succession with those kinds of conditions, you had your, your fire weather. But with the weather stations and both portable, the compact and the fixed, we're now with the, the software capability going to mobile devices, able to give alerts on weather thresholds. Uh, you can get a ping or an alert on your smartphone saying, you know, we've, heat, we've reached 30 degrees Celsius or we've reached that single digits relative humidity or the wind speed and direction has just changed and we've got a really dangerous situation on our hands. Um, lots of opportunity to get, you know, real-time information 
pinged out there to uh, people, operational people on the ground and in the air. The key word there is real time. And uh, it looks like um, the future is going to be making it more and more real time. Thanks, Neil. That's Neil Bibby, the editor of Asia Pacific Fire, joining us on the Firecast. And I'm just going to wrap up because we're nearly out of time now, Sean, uh, picking up on what Neil said about the future. Where do you see the future of wildfire situation awareness going? How do you see the technology evolving to meet the demands of a world that is increasingly at risk of wildfires? Yeah, thanks, Paul. You know, that's it's a loaded question and uh, we're, we're short on time. I don't know if I could squeeze it all in, but I'll try. I mean, I'll definitely say that, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning, I'm hearing that more and more, especially in the electric utility industries. And, you know, we're seeing that, there, you know, there's, there's still much more work to be done in these areas. Until these technologies like artificial intelligence, machine learning, are fully elaborated, it's going to be difficult for us to hang our hats on, you know, preventing and mitigating wildfire threats to the general public. Uh, when these t- technologies are proven in the field, they'll definitely have their place in wildfire realms. And who knows what else will be out there and available by the time they're proven, you know, mature products in the wildfire industry. But, you know, time will tell. But, you know, between now and then, however, you know, we, we need to look at the amount of wildfire experience that's being drained from a lot of the organizations through retirement, and in some cases, failed succession planning practices for some welfare agencies, you know, we need to rely more and more on imagery than ever before. So, you know, seeing the welfare conditions and the welfare behavior in the landscape is not always uh, so easy to obtain. So, you know, with ever expanding populations resulting in, you know, wildland urban interface, uh, all within welfare ecosystems, you know, we're often seeing new welfares you know, being reported more on Twitter and, and social media platforms and conventional methods like, you know, phone reports. But we're certainly seeing the large events via television media outlets. You know, and this is simply a byproduct of more people out there. More, But the, the, with that comes more eyes on the surrounding areas. So we're getting, you know, more wildfire detection. You know, but, but what about the wildfires that are starting farther outside our line of sight? And this is kind of where I want to go with this, you know well into the landscapes where these fuel accumulations have been left unmodified or, or lacking adequate modifications for decades. You know, what about those? What about the climate change that's unprecedented? You know, like in the last five years, it's just been an amazing difference to what it was 10 or 20 years ago, where we used to see more of an El Nino, La Nina cyclical, like three to four year or four to five year cyclical pattern. We're seeing every year, you know, annual uh, devastating wildfire, cumulative drought, fire seasons are longer. California has officially gone to 12 months of the year. Here in, in Western Canada, we're seeing much longer seasons, more dramatic increases in you know, the fuel that, that's there to be consumed. Um, cumulative drought, we have forest pest infestations that are plaguing our wildland areas, killing the trees, you know, contributing to Long-range spotting, which is a huge problem in, you know, as far as containing a wildfire, that it's, we've seen long-range spotting up to 10 kilometers away from the original fire. Um, it's just unprecedented wildfire behavior out there and very difficult to contain. Combined with increasing extreme weather comes more lightning events. We touched on lightning earlier. There's more lightning than ever before as a result of climate change. We're seeing more remote industrial operations, more people in these areas for recreation there's just overall an increased probability of ignition out there. And with the circumstance of these natural areas just mentioned, essentially, you know, we have a ticking time bomb out there for major catastrophic wildfire events, 
many areas around the world. So for both wildfire agencies and electric utilities, I see you know, increasing deployments of a, a mix of fixed weather stations, compact and portable weather stations serving as infill stations, more automated wildfire cameras in targeted locations on existing assets like communications towers, distribution poles, transmission towers to increase situational awareness. And really, you know, we talk about situational awareness, but what we're trying to do in creating situational awareness is create a common operating picture for the people that actually respond to the fires, wildfire agencies or electric utility people, you know, to more effectively mitigate and threat the threat of wildfire and enhance wildfire outcomes in, in the local community. You know, simple, easy to use software, like we talked about FTS 360 and the public facing Overwatch site, these can provide calls to action via alerts while also being used to communicate and share wildfire information and wildfire danger conditions to increase the safety of wildfire and utility frontline workers and also the general public. But no question, climate change, human influences have all changed our environment dramatically over the past decades. You know, we're seeing an increase of the human caused fires and it's, it's really quite sobering. So, you know, we have a lot of work to do. We need to adapt to the environment we live in which includes adapting along with the wildfire ecosystems that have also existed and adapted over millennia, long before we settled on these Aboriginal lands. And we just need to start using every means available, including technology more than ever before to try and catch up. Sean Bethel, wildfire mitigation specialist and director of business development for FTS, the global leader in fire weather networks. Thank you for joining me on this latest Firecast. Thanks for having me, Paul. I appreciate it. And that's it for today's programme. Thanks again to Neil and to Sean. Thank you for listening. And we'll talk again on another Firecast very soon. Firecast is produced and presented by Paul Hutton and is an MDM publishing podcast in association with Asia Pacific Fire magazine.